Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome, everyone, to The Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you are here. This is the holiday season, and this podcast is designed to bring awakening to your life and joy to your life, and also a deepening spiritual experience. And all the guests that I have on here are people who have been taking such interesting, interesting journeys and have something very unique to share, their own perspective, their own teaching, or just how they're being loved in the world. So without further ado, I'll go ahead and introduce my new my guest today. Deborah Eden Tull is the founder of Mindful Living Revolution, which teaches the integration of compassionate awareness into every aspect of our lives, bridging personal and collective awakening in an age of global change. She's a Dharma teacher, spiritual activist, author, and sustainability educator, and she's taught engaged meditation for over 20 years. Eden trained for seven and a half years as a Buddhist monk at a silent Zen monastery, has lived in sustainable communities, and as an organic gardener and farmer for decades, and she celebrates the essential wisdom of nature. She's the author of The Natural Kitchen, Relational Mindfulness, and the most recently published Luminous Darkness, an Engaged Buddhist Approach to Embracing the Unknown, which is really the focus of today's podcast. So welcome, Eden. Grateful to be here with you, Carol. Yeah, I'm glad to have you with me today, too. Your book is very, very, very rich. <laughs> there's, there's so much in it. And when anybody approaches me to be on my podcast and they want to send me a PDF, I'm like, I can't do PDFs. I'm not going to do more screen time, which I think you can appreciate <laughs> the over, over lightning we have going on in the world. But also, I just really like to mark it up and to make notes, and your book is just full of them. So it was a great, great book and a really great contribution, I think, to the world. But before we get into the book and in, into this idea of embracing the unknown and luminous darkness, I wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of fill in the blanks from the introduction, the blanks of your story, how you got to where you are, and how you're living spiritually today. Sure. Well, I am here from the mountains of Western North Carolina today, and I would maybe begin by sharing that a couple of years before the pandemic hit, the vision of a book on luminous darkness and exploring enlightenment alongside enlightenment uh, dropped in loud and clear for me, like a calling. I remember feeling like but life, I have so much else on my plate. I'm in service in so many other ways. This is a big project, really. And yet it put into context and it quickly fell into place sort of an entire journey I've been on in my life, which I had never quite framed in that way, that darkness has been my greatest teacher that I have throughout my entire life, as every one of the listeners can resonate with in their own way been navigating the unknown, the uncertainty of being human, the collective uncertainty of the world we've inherited. And 
I've also been someone who has navigated the unknown through chronic illness, through um, simply my, my path as a creative and from a family of artists and activists. Darkness is the field from which all of light and all of creativity arises. And I would also add, because there's so much I could say in introduction, that I've always been very in touch with receptivity and sensitivity. And yet, in a world where the dominant paradigm tends to hold the notion of genuine power as force, as yang, not yin. And yet, a thread throughout my entire journey has been the more I learn to surrender to receptivity and to celebrate the yin aspect of my being, the more I step into a greater power than I had once known. And this is shared power, not power over, but power with. So today I am a teacher and mentor for many. I run a nonprofit, as you named. I guide retreats and workshops and also leadership trainings that are very much about leading from the heart, that are very much about living and leading from deep listening as our foundation. Getting out of the way, which means getting ego out of the way, and <laughs> listening from a deeper source of intelligence that guides us in actions that serve interconnection rather than sort of the agenda of separate self. So yeah, you pointed to a couple things on my path. I spent seven and a half years as a Buddhist monk in a silent monastery, and I spent many years both before and after living in intentional communities. So living close to the earth has been a thread for me and learning from the earth as teacher. And there's plenty I could share in terms of bio, but I find it more interesting to just dive into our conversation, knowing people can read about me online. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Thank you. I think that's a really good idea. And, and even just what you're saying, I, my mind is going in many, many parallel paths about where we can go with this conversation. And the first thing that kind of hit me is what's happening in the world right now, which I think a lot of people have different views of, but, and people who listen to my podcast know that I talk about these two different paths a lot. And it looks like we're kind of going into this crazy AI kind of world. But what you're describing is that other path, I think. Are you are you mm -hmm. seeing that what really is up for us as a species, or not even just as a species, as an entire ecosystem, is to rebalance the, the yin? Absolutely. And that we can't even have a strong and healthy yang unless we have a balanced and strong yin. They exist in partnership and constant collaboration. And as you just mentioned, AI, I write in the book, about the fact that we are experiencing the overlighting of planet Earth right now. Over 60% of our globe artificially lit at night and over 90% of the US and Europe. And so I begin with the premises of let's remember that our ancestors until quite recently spent a great deal of time under the night sky, in the darkness, awake to the mystery, 
being humbled, perhaps awake to the field of possibility, awake to the world beyond the human-focused world. And as you just pointed to, of speed, of bright lights, of technology and rational mind as God. And it's certainly not gotten us to where we need to be. And it's gotten us in a great deal of trouble alongside some of the blessings some of that has brought. And so I'm encouraging us to explore on many different levels, the medicine of darkness and the invitation of endarkenment alongside the pursuit of enlightenment. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how darkness culturally has been kind of given a bad rap or or it's been assigned to evil or it's been assigned to the dark underbelly or some place that we need to stay away from. And I know my own ministry, and I'm a unity minister, we'll, we'll talk about the sun shining <laughs> spiritual bypass later. But in, in unity, I see a lot of that. I don't know if you know much, a lot about unity, but there's a lot about positive, positive, positive. And in my own ministry, with my own church, which I, I don't have anymore, but I, I, I tried to guide people into the, the depth of their being and the darkness and going into the shadows and, and looking, at the, looking at the darkness. But there's a, real, uh, there's a real pushback on that. And so let's talk about what you talk about in your book about how darkness has been kind of mischaracterized and what it really is. Sure. Well, first, even if you look in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, darkness is defined as the absence of light. And that reminds us of this unconscious bias where light is held on a pedestal. Light is where it's at. Light is where we want to be. Light is all good and darkness is all bad. And I invite people into inquiry and meditations to instead meet darkness with beginner's mind, with absolute curiosity and openness. What is darkness if not the absence of light? Is it not the restorative field in nature and consciousness, the place of incubation and gestation and regeneration? Is it not the mystery from which we all came into which we will all return? Is it not the field of all possibility rather than that which is formed and appears to be set and fixed in stone? Is it not the domain of dreaming? It's so much for us symbolically and metaphorically, and also physically. Um, I'm a practitioner of animism, which points to everything in nature carries consciousness. And so what is the consciousness of darkness as a medicine? Instead of darkness is bad, darkness is to be feared, we need to try to get to the light. And so just looking at all of the impact, and I think Listeners can look within at even just how the impact has been internally when we're perhaps judging and pushing away aspects of ourselves, our emotions, or psyche that we deem dark, where we are judging others. And we could talk about racism and xenophobia and all of the othering that has come from rejection of dark, that we tend to avoid the deeper, darker undercurrents of our experience, which is a fertile field for greater resilience and love and compassion in an age when we need it. We're facing an age of greater global uncertainty than any of our ancestors face. So we need 
new tools and also ancient medicines. And darkness is one. Many wisdom traditions have celebrated darkness throughout history. And so just interesting that the modern dominant paradigm is anti-dark and there's been tremendous impact. So I talk about this in the book um, on many levels, personal, interpersonal, ecological, mystical, societal. And I talk about it with love and also just hopefully with humor at times because it's such an unconscious bias. You with me? Oh, I'm completely with you. In fact, it yeah. was interesting when I was when I was reading your book because I could feel within me my own resistance because I could feel where I was with darkness when I started your book. And even though I even though I teach my value going into the shadow and 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 looking at the darkness, I do use the metaphor that darkness is the absence of light. I do say that. I I mm -hmm. have I have said that. And and I also think you you talked about ancient peoples. Ancient people who for thousands and thousands of years lived under the night sky because they didn't have fire. I can see where darkness as the absence of light kind of came about because the the fire brought brought light to the darkness. And and you know you you really can't bring I guess you can. I guess you can darken the light by by putting out the fire. But I think it. I think it's something that we just kind of became enamored with early on when when fire came onto the planet. It's like, oh, light light is good. So I I could see my own unconscious biases about light and dark and how I use those two those words, particularly how what I assign as dark. But then I started moving into darkness is like the void or the unknown. And I completely, completely, completely get that, or the field of potentiality, you know, yes. out of, out of, out of anything that's created, it, it comes out of this field of potentiality, which was nothing before, and then it's created, and that. So when I, I started looking at darkness in that way, and it, it shifted for me, and I started noticing my own biases. But I also want to add that you have a Buddhist background and animism, but I, I also look, I. I do Christian Judeo, but I also look at the Bible as uh, metaphorically and a, a great story of our spiritual evolution. And there are two places that that I was really kind of moved to think, oh, that's the darkness. One is the story of Moses in the wilderness when people have left slavery and before they go into the quote promised land, they're in this wilderness, they're in the void, they're in the, the nothingness, they're in this place of the unknown. And it's uncomfortable, and they spend a lot of time there until they redefine themselves, they transmute themselves, they, they, they change themselves in that void. And then the other story is Jesus, after the crucifixion, is in the tomb, the tomb before there's a resurrection. And whether you believe any of that story or you look at it metaphorically, the transmutation takes place in that that darkness of the tomb. That's the place where the caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Yes, I love what you're sharing, and I also love your transparency and sharing your own process around looking at your relationship to darkness. It's for all of us a place to grow. And I appreciate that you brought in the phrase, the void, the, the fertile emptiness, the luminous darkness, when we're perceiving something as the absence of light or the absence of fullness. <laughs> we are missing the invitation. And even as you described the wilderness, the historical spiritual um, transition 
there's a way in which when we are willing with curiosity as our guide to navigate the unknown, to walk through even metaphorically the thicketed, darkened forest, we become aware that all of our other senses awaken. We become aware that there's room for new guidance and new information and new awarenesses in that open, empty space. We become aware of guidance from a deeper center of intelligence than our rational mind, which likes brightly lit paths and signs and this marking the way and the familiar. But whether it's on the individual spiritual path or our collective journey right now, part of being human is navigating the absolute unknown, the void, again, the darkness from which we all came and to which we will all return. And so learning to befriend the night is the phrase that I use and learning how to stay present and in compassion and learn the lessons, the teachings that darkness offers us. This is so needed in today's world, especially. Yeah. Oh, it is. I'm thinking about, uh, we, we kind of live in an anxiety ridden world. And I, and I, and I see that as people were trying to navigate like the COVID couple last years of COVID, it's like people are looking for who's going to keep me safe and who's going to who's going to show me the way and, and what should I do now? What should, and, not, and not listening to that inner inner depth of being, which is I think all we really need. I think all we really need is our inner inner ground of being that will guide us through, like you say, the dark the dark forest because we're living we're living in complete uncertainty now. I think and I yes. Yeah, I think we always are, but now we know we are. <laughs> now we know we are. And so this is where, for some people, fear can kick in, anxiety can kick in. And what humans are conditioned to do is to want to reach outward and to look to externals for safety, though it's a false sense of safety, to build scaffolding in our lives, to try to find a sense of security. So, okay, this is a time of unknown. This is a life of the unknown. So if I find the right relationship, the right place to be, the right leader whose beliefs to believe, the right this, the right that. And that seeking externally takes us further and further away from the internal source of guidance, which is the seat of both inner connection. We need to be deeply connected within ourselves, but it's also the source of interconnection where we feel and experience ourselves as part of the natural feedback system of planet Earth, Gaia consciousness. We feel and experience that we are sensitive and receptive to communication with life beyond our limited perceptions and conditioned mind. So it's about being willing, being courageous enough to drop the habit of turning to the mind as center of gravity and the bubble of separate self and opening to something much bigger that I'm describing in this book, the darkness helps us to open to. And every time we're willing to turn towards rather than away from something that we've labeled even just dark in the way of unknown, uncomfortable, um, unfamiliar, we can deepen our capacity for both compassionate presence and this quality of deep listening or openness to guidance that you and I are touching right now. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about what is what is it that stops us? But 
I'm also remembering the times where I was very conscious of being in a void. Like life went from being certain to uncertain. And it it feels like free fall. I mean, I think it feels kind of like, at least for me, it feels kind of like free fall, like going into an abyss and 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 looking for handholds and footholds, and there aren't any. And at some point, I just have to surrender to the fall. Yes. And in surrendering to the fall, there's absolute peace. There's a much deeper safety and trust. Oh my gosh, this abyss I was trying to push against and avoid is uh, not something I need to avoid. I can actually surrender and trust. And this is the peace I've always been looking for. What? It comes from surrender and it's so counterintuitive. And so one of the points I make in the book is that in our current seeking of enlightenment, whether on the path of Buddhist meditation or mindfulness or any other spiritual path, we have to wake up to some of the unconscious biases that have been passed down in our spiritual communities and traditions. And we've all been impacted, no matter what tradition, by, for instance, the Cartesian era and the age of rationalization, the age of enlightenment in Europe and patriarchy and colonialism and capitalism. And so there's an unconscious bias of number one, trying to get to the light as if enlightenment is an end and a goal. And maybe we'll get there by philosophizing and understanding our way there and efforting our way there. So remember, (laughs) yang and light are affiliated with the very active muscles, producing, attaining speed, getting somewhere, achieving, getting revelation, and instead learning to rest in the fertile darkness or emptiness from which revelation arises, learning to rest in the unformed, the invisible, the field of all possibility, the field of shared being. And so much of my path in meditation Uh, I talk about the transition between starting off the path, thinking I was supposed to be the solo, heroic, spiritual warrior, trying to get to the light, right? Push away the dark, um, get past all my demons and all the effort (laughs) that took and all the overwork that took. We, We use mental effort for so much that we don't know we're using it for. And it was through Zen practice and also through the gift of illness and that I instead was finally willing to stop and to slow down and to surrender as we're talking about and to find out that everything I had been looking for is already within. And I know so many listeners can resonate that we're remembering the already awakened state, not seeking out like warriors to find and achieve (laughs) enlightenment, that we have to rest in the darkness to remember that it's already here. And it contains, because it's a spacious field of shared presence, the full spectrum of light and dark. And even as we look to nature, we notice that the night contains the seed of dawn and dawn evolves into the day which emerges into dusk so it's all one yeah yeah what kind of practical i don't i don't know the word advice is right but what what do you suggest people who are listening now what what would you suggest they do practically speaking yeah yeah thank you there's all kinds of practices in the book but one thing is to simply become curious about what the impact our associations with dark as negative has had 
and to be willing to compassionately question that. There's so much for everyone to see who's been impacted by this collective conditioning. And number two, to become curious in an inquiring and experiential way about darkness itself, both the experience of darkness of night, being willing to spend some time. A lot of people are instead spending time every night in a brightly lit space with a brightly lit screen, right? Mm -hmm. To be curious about physical darkness and simply through closing our eyes or softening our gaze, we can learn a lot about like what awakens in the body when my eyes are resting closed and how does my deep listening become stronger when I'm not so focused on the visual field all the time. So there's lots of simple things. But again, in the book, I offer many practices that allow us to, in our ordinary life, (laughs) without having to go on darkness retreat, which you can do if you choose, uh, to just remember the teacher of the yin, the restorative, the field of possibility beyond all that appears to us to be fixed and set in stone. We desperately need to awaken to possibility in this age when we're incredibly uh, stuck with residue and harm caused by generations and generations of disconnect from the natural world and all that's caused, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, you spent seven years in a monastery and but it, it seven years of silence. Yes. And to be clear, it was a a silent space, a silent community. So we ate our meals in silence and did working meditation in silence. And we would come together three times a week for group, community, kind of discussion and learning about our practice. And as we stayed there years and years longer, we might end up in positions of leadership where some voice was needed, but we never socialized or engaged uh, casually in conversation. It was a silent community. Yeah. And I think most people look at that and go, oh my gosh, that's so hard. <laughs> that's so much. And I and short circuit that like, what can I, how can I get some of that fast? <laughs> and then we're using, we're using the same thing that's entrapped us to try yes. to. <laughs> you got it. And we always want to know what are the three steps I can take <laughs> as if it's a <laughs> linear process, which it's not. But it is interesting because I no longer live as a monastic and I don't teach monastics. I believe firmly, and I'm sure this resonates with your work in your own way, that in our ordinary life, using our daily life as a laboratory exactly as this life is, beautiful, messy, sticky, busy, uh, it is our birthright to awaken and that remembering the already awakened state of presence is easier than we think. <laughs> yeah, and you, in yeah. your book, you, you, you mentioned the term waking down instead of waking up. Yes, and that's because we are a truly heady society, and it's just part of the legacy of it, such a disconnect from the natural world that many people aren't even aware of the ways it's impacted them, so that we need to wake down, coming into our bodies, our earth bodies, our earth connection, our feeling bodies, our dreaming bodies, (laughs) the body which is a bridge for both the physical and the mystical and that means getting out of our heads folks so that's one of the the big teachings of endarkenment because i think we've held this notion of light as the lamp of knowledge and again we talked earlier about 
how we're conditioned to act when we're facing uncertainty in the unknown. We want to turn to externals and build scaffolding, but we also want to just navigate it by labeling life, assessing life, categorizing life. If I can know it that way, if I can know the mystery through labels, people, that is the wrong direction. That only takes us further and further from knowing ourselves as part of the living matrix of life and living in partnership with this matrix, right? Yeah. And you, one of the exercises that you had in your book was to spend 24 hours noticing how we use hierarchy, how we assess something as being better or worse and good or bad and the inferior, (laughs) superior. And it's interesting. I mean, I I think we're training that as as toddlers or even when we get little books, you know, what do you like better? What's better? What do you, you know, and I, I can actually see how I condition my own children. But let's talk a little bit about hierarchy. Because you say it, it is true. It, hierarchy assumes that there is a superiority and an inferiority. So it's like once you decide something is better than something else, then we're st- obviously stuck in duality. Yes. But then we're also kind of stuck in that domination thing, right? You've got it. And hierarchical perception is not true to our original consciousness, to true nature. It's something we're doing in the conditioned mind, like laying an overlay or interpretation over life. Life happens. I wake up this morning and there's clouds in the sky. I wake up this morning and it's a sunny day. But we're the ones who go and then label better, worse, right, wrong, good, bad, positive, negative, superior, inferior. And in kind of a desperate way, it's time for humans to examine this habit and the harm that this habit has caused and also the lack of freedom it causes. It takes so much energy to be continually in the mind, labeling and categorizing our experience rather than living in the flow and the wholeness of our life experience. So one of the things I love about meditation, and meditation as a way of life, not just something we do on the cushion, is that it teaches us to drop into a deeper awareness, to meet life from the awareness that is not judging, that is intimate with what is, that is listening to life as it unfolds moment by moment without going into the head about everything to label it. And this creates, this affirms our love for life and our oneness with life. And it creates a much freer experience of being human. It doesn't mean we don't have preferences. doesn't mean we become like, um, you know, numbed out. It's the opposite to that. (laughs) But we're not locked in our conditioned mind. And yeah. Yeah. So is it like, like I may prefer chocolate over vanilla, but that doesn't make chocolate better than vanilla? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's also interesting because if you're holding that preference, then you might not be so awake to having an original experience of vanilla because you've already labeled it. <laughs> good point. That's a good point. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. I, I was really taken by, but this really clicked for me <laughs> because I'm I'm a dreamer and I dream of utopia <laughs> and I can picture that and on page 55 you put me in my place <laughs> I appreciate it <laughs> let's hear <laughs> you said free from the burden of labeling everything as either positive or negative there is just life happening and you so you're talking about there's a delusion of utopia that those of us who think who who, who spend time that's not even the right word. Those of us who use our energy by thinking about 
the ideal world and what it would take and what it would look like that we're really missing out on being present. I mean, I can definitely see that. And we're labeling what is happening now as wrong or negative or something that needs to be fixed. And in the meantime, life is just happening. Yes. Here's something I I would offer for listeners. One of the frameworks I found so helpful in meditation practice is, you know, when we take a look at the ego or conditioned mind, which each and every one of us has, in addition to having true nature as the ground of our being, we notice that there's this separate self, the ego, standing outside of life, looking in. As I said, judging, assessing, comparing, making stories about everything. It can take a tremendous amount of energy and life force to feed that, to stay in that loop. And that loop is separate from life. When we drop into truly being present and awake to life, again, there is no, uh, this is ideal and this is bad. There's an acceptance and a welcoming and a, a love, like an open-hearted meeting of everything from the beauty to the challenge, from the emotion that we uh, love to the emotion that we find difficult, the whole spectrum. And we become more vibrantly alive and whole when we are willing to be present with the whole spectrum instead of just the stuff we like and not the stuff we don't like. That said, you pointed to that piece about utopia, and I would just bring in one clarification. There's an invitation to accept this life as it is, this moment as it is, so that we are not, so that we are fully here, so that we are awake. And then from that place, not pitting this moment against an imaginary better or different moment, which is the cause of great suffering for many humans, but from full presence, we can also engage our imagination consciously on behalf of the whole. So there's a whole chapter about the role of the dreamer in collective awakening, dreaming and the domain of darkness, and how we can consciously use our imagination to get more in touch with possibilities for a more life-forming world. So it's important that we're not unconsciously imagining and then hating this moment, but that we're consciously remembering our imaginations as a treasure chest. Yes, yeah, I it's it's such an ego trap to be to want to create a, against what is. You know, it's like this is wrong, this is bad. We need something else. And it's you, you can you'll never we'll never create something else more beautiful coming from that space. We we have to come from another space, I think, to create another reality that that honors all of life and ourselves as well. Yeah, it's a real trap. And I'm seeing you know, instead, people get so stuck in differences. You talk about all the isms. There's also this is political difference and my guy and your guy and, and you know, he's right and he's wrong and that party's wrong and that party's right. And, and then we do that with races and genders and everything. And so what is all that? And do you think that's something we've just inherited? Or is there something innate about us that has to find differences? Or is it really just because we're in this light thing and we're not really delving into the dark? It's the natural expression of ego. It's the uh-huh. definition of egocentricity. Ego thrives in drama and polarization. And so even in the original story of the, the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, um, sitting for a moment of great enlightenment, 
the story goes that Mara, the sort of demonic forces of distraction, was pulling every card possible to pull the Buddha out of presence and out of equanimity and compassion into delusion. And so we'll pull the card of this seductive story and this dramatic story and this hateful story and this, and the Buddha wasn't budging and the Buddha was not leaving presence and peace. And finally, Mara became so frustrated and infuriated. Mara exclaimed, by what authority is it that you are going against my seductions of the mind? By what authority? By whose authority? And Buddha reached down and touched the earth and said, by the authority of the earth, by the authority of this earth, just affirming that when we're really here and home in the moment, home in our earth connection, home in who and what we are, beyond the realm of drama and polarization, which is all in the mind, folks, all of it. When we're here, <laughs> we remember true nature, or every tradition has different language for this, God, essence, no self it's sometimes pointed to in Buddhism, because it's when we get ego or the self out of the way, that there's all the room for life to animate us. And it's just that simple. <laughs> yeah. And I, I hope listeners find it heartening to remember, oh, yeah, when I'm feeding that drama or when I'm falling into it, which we all do at times, I can remember that it's not really me. And if I listen to it enough, I can know it's it's not me. I'll just share a brief story if that's okay. Please that's do. Yeah. Really simple because it's important, um, as you do so well, to ground our conversation in the practical and accessible and I remember when I was new to the monastery where I trained, I remember it was winter, it was cold, and I came home one day after a long day of working meditation outside to my teeny tiny hermitage in the woods, uninsulated. And I remember I just heard myself saying, oh no, what have I got myself into? It's freezing. I'm miserable. This is so not fun. How am I going to make it? And I paused, which is a practice, long enough to inquire within and listen deeper. What was my actual experience in this moment, free from the drama of the mind? And what I noticed was, oh my gosh, I didn't feel too cold at all. It was perfectly the right temperature. My body was at peace. I had warm blankets around me. I felt exhilarated and joyful from a day of good work outside. I felt absolute peace. And the voices in my head were going to pull me into complete suffering, except that I recognize the choice we have in every moment to drop deeper <laughs> and to recognize that that's not me, right? Yeah, that's not me. And when people are acting up, it's not them either. You got it. You got it. <laughs> And so we have to meet it all with more compassion and more space and not be so quick to go into that mind of good, bad, right, wrong. Right, right. It's so interesting how we're conditioned that way. It's so interesting. I'd like to talk a little bit about what you call sunshining or spiritual bypass. Is sunshining the same as spiritual bypass to you? Very related. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can yeah. you describe what, what that sure. is? Sure. Yeah. So I share my story in the book about uh, growing up in the city of LA, uh, a beloved city to me, full of creativity and wildness, and also 
a place that I saw a lot of the culture of sun shining and also a lot of the culture of consumerism, which really pained me as a young person who cared about the earth. But sun shining seemed to point to this tendency people had to want to keep things light, stay positive at all costs, even when they had something difficult going on inside, keep things surface, avoid difficult or even multidimensional or nuanced conversations, (laughs) keep it light as if that was the imperative. And as a young person, I went through tremendous grief um, when I lost my father at the age of 11 and I lost um, three other core mentors in the next about seven year period and became aware that, oh my gosh, this culture of sunshining does not in any way know what to do with grief or know mm-hmm. how to welcome in a loving, tender way that experience. And I see it, of course, not solely in LA, but everywhere. And then it connects with spiritual bypassing, what you name the tendency to use spiritual practices or philosophies to justify sunshining and turning away from difficulty. And I just think that who and what we are is so much bigger than that. We've got so much more love within than we even know. If we're trying to sunshine, we don't get to know that love. We get Mm -hmm. it activated every time. We turn towards discomfort every time we're we're willing to greet someone else's discomfort with tenderness. It just shows us how what our capacity is, right? Yeah. And you mentioned another thing, another quote that I I wrote down was on page 56, fear of the human underworld, the dark place deep within us is actually fear of our authentic power. Yes. So we're the whole sunshining thing is it's an avoidance of of pain and it's avoidance of what's real but it's also this fear of who we are yes and an avoidance of shared power and i'll just say in the book i talk a lot about the difference between shared power and power with which is our authentic power versus power over which comes from that hierarchical model but just to acknowledge the underworld the deeper undercurrents of our experience this includes our emotions, our memories, our dreams. It includes that which we've repressed and have yet to reclaim. It's life force, it's energy, it's eros. And if we're going to numb out, which when we're sunshining, we are, we're cutting one half of our existence off, we're not tapping into an entirety of power that we could then use to live more full of love, to be of service more fully, to be more creative, to be more free and alive. So that underworld is a tremendous resource that we are not tapping into. And we often justify not tapping into it by this kind of notion of sticking with the illusion of unconditional love and projecting it out. So this will be rejected if I show it. I can show this in the world because that'll be accepted. So we're maintaining this status quo that's killing us, numbing us out, and diminishing our true power. Yeah. Yeah. And what would what would it, uh, the world be like? What do you think it would look like if we all actually embodied that authentic power? Great question. Um, for one thing, I think we would be living, and this might take humans a long time to get to, but in a paradigm of shared power. Because we get into power struggles and power issues when we're diminishing our own power. And then we see someone else in their power and we get jealous, we get envious, or we push against. So 
the more each person is willing to tap into their authentic power, the more they know there's nothing to defend. There's plenty to go around. <laughs> uh, my power empowers your power, right? It's it's shared because it's the field of earth consciousness, actually, and human consciousness, not separate self or ego carrying a power. I also think it would be a field where we were much more free to be wildly creative, to be courageous, to um, live outside of some of the uh, box of social expectations, which truly encourage people to play it small. Mm -hmm. So just to pause for a moment, my second book is called Relational Mindfulness, and it's a book I wrote in transition from living in silent monastery to living out in the world of socializing and family and dating and all of that. And one of the points I make is that the more we're practicing um, presence and this kind of inward focus within accepting the wholeness of who we are and the spectrum of who we are, the more we can show up and engage with others in a way that is fully honest, that is truly transparent, that is both shining our light and not trying to hide any perceived darkness, <laughs> that is an invitation for others to be more whole too. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I also think that if we really held we're rooted in our authentic power, we would be self-governing. I think that we would, we would just know what was the right thing to do. We would know what the right steps for me to take are. We would know how to live in a cooperative world that didn't harm others. This certainly is pointed to in things like systems theory and the way that systems, ecological systems, life systems self-organize when mm -hmm. they're permitted to in the most intelligent ways. So I think it's an interesting point that you're making. Yeah. Yeah. And I also know a lot of people, and I'm, and I'm, I'm looking outside myself now, <laughs> so I'm noticing that, mm -hmm. but, but the, the fear of self-governing or the fear of being sovereign or responsible for myself. And I, and I really want to project that out onto somebody else to tell me what to do. I think, I think that's another path that we, that 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 people that keep people from moving into the the dark place within us and and and, as, and assuming our authentic power. Yes, I talk about this all the time, and it's a very alive topic. Just to make the point that spiritual practice is an invitation to reclaim the authority of the heart, the inner authority, this place where we can trust within, where we can. Uh, show up in full integrity. Our energy is not going outward to looking for the authority out there mm -hmm. uh, through a particular leader or teacher, through a particular philosophy, through politics, okay? But that we are living from the authority of the heart, the shared heart. And even in a field like meditation, it's really important to acknowledge that oftentimes people will put spiritual teachers, right, on a pedestal. Yep. And that can erase the invitation for that person to take agency for their own practice, to be strengthening their own authority while working in reciprocal relationship with a mentor, with a teacher. And these kind of relationships have to be looked at clearly and closely, right, mm -hmm. in order yeah. for it to really support someone to thrive and to awaken. 
Right. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, there was a lot in your book. So I don't I know all of it. <laughs> you have a great memory so far. <laughs> but uh, didn't you describe your uh, your struggle with Lyme disease? And wasn't there something in there about the doctors and you're finding your own authority through your healing? Yes. So I trained at a phenomenal monastery that also had been informed by what I would call patriarchal conditioning and the power over model. So there definitely was hierarchy in that spiritual community. It wasn't actually until I left that I more fully stepped into reclaiming the authority of my heart, the way I'm speaking of. And so in that original um, dynamic and the relationship I had with the person who was my teacher at that time, there was kind of an agreement when you were a monk that every um, important choice you made, every personal choice to make sure it wasn't going in the hands of ego, would run through the higher ups. And there was a way for people who are listening who are like, what? That's crazy. There was a way that that can be very useful at a certain part of one's practice, because for a certain period of one's practice, it can help one learn to trust guidance and to ask and question. So we can start to discern, how does it feel? What's the quality of thought when my ego is telling me something versus presence? Okay. But because power over models are really don't work ultimately, there was plenty of room for um, messes to occur. So in what you're pointing to, there was a time well, one, for instance, when I got bit by a black widow spider unknowingly and asked for guidance about what this was and how to navigate it and was told to sit with it by the higher ups. And so I sat with it, even though my internal guidance said very differently. And it wasn't until my whole body was filled with venom and that I got to a doctor by their permission. And the doctor said, you were actually close to this being the end of your life. <laughs> so that kind of thing. And I'm laughing, but it was quite serious. And I acknowledge that because I'm aware of spiritual communities across the globe that are navigating this kind of thing right now, mm -hmm. where there has to be kind of a new paradigm that emerges of instead of the power over model of spiritual growth, um, reciprocal relationships and mentor mentee relationships where that pedestal is not there that doesn't mean we're erasing profound respect that doesn't mean we're erasing some of the beauty of what discipleship is because that's an incredible um quality in teaching in our world but it means that we have to be aware of power dynamics because as humans We've proven we're just really bad with them. <laughs> yeah, oh, I think we have. We have, and then we keep yeah. doing it. You got <laughs> it. You got it. <laughs> this doesn't work. This doesn't work. Let's keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, well, Enon, this has been fabulous, and I want to give you the last, you know, we got like five minutes or so to come up to an hour, and I would give you the last words for whatever I didn't cover, whatever you want to share. Well, as you mentioned about the book, there's so much. <laughs> and there is. I want to really appreciate your quality of presence and the transparency and self-awareness I see you modeling as you talk. And that's something I love deeply and that I think invites people into this shared power that we're talking about. Because when leaders don't show their whole selves, there's room for projection there's room for that old model of leader or teacher as expert mm -hmm. instead of leader and teacher as human, as in process, 
And I think I'll name that, you know, for people who are interested in exploring luminous darkness even deeper, there's all kinds of offerings on my website. We have a monthly gathering that starts in January and some retreats in person as well. And on this topic of leadership and of shared power or power with, I guide some longer, very rich and beautiful, dear to my heart, trainings where we're really actively exploring what does it mean to show up to life, to community, to leadership in shared power. And one is a six-month training called The Heart of Listening. One is called Seeing with the Heart. We tend to be pretty heart-based. Um, but I encourage people who feel intrigued or called to, to check that out because we are all navigating change and there's a way in which we're all being called to step more into leadership on behalf of change. There's so much residue of the old that needs to be shed and re requires courage and compassion and care and resiliency to step into the new. Yeah. And is that going to be online? Is it? Yes. Okay. So anybody yeah. can participate. You got it. Yeah. 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 Okay, great. And I'll have all those links on the, the podcast page so that people can find you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm also very intrigued by your book, The Natural Kitchen. Well, I would say anytime you want to have a second conversation, just let me know. I've thoroughly okay. enjoyed this. And there's so much richness in, in that book and in our okay. relationship with food. Great. Great. I'd really, yeah. I really like that. So, well, thank you, Eden, so much for blessing us with your presence, your, your life story, your experience, and your wisdom. Thank you. I've so enjoyed this. Me too. Me too. And happy holidays to you. And thank you listeners yeah. for listening. And I now close the spiritual forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being. Thank you.